Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our reading today is Titus chapter 1, 5 through 16. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dispensation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sword gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for establishing and maintaining a local congregation for your people. Your promises made to our forefathers are so close and so dear to us, and the gathering of your people to repeat and proclaim them is vital. Let us do all things in proper order, building on what you have handed down through your faithful servants that came before us so it can be handed faithfully down. Allow us to be faithful stewards who can see and refute those that will lead us away from the gospel. Mm-hmm. So our hearts together in the grace and truth that is in your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, Joel. We are looking at chapter one of the book of Titus. We have considered verses five through nine already last week. This morning, we are looking at 10 through 16, which stands as a contrast to the descriptive of elders that we have seen in verses 5 through 9. I wanted to make sure that we looked at that entire paragraph or those two paragraphs in their context, and it is something that I trust we'll be able to build off of this morning. The dominant idea that we have inside our text is that Jesus does indeed work, that the Jesus seed is always producing gospel fruit. This is what we see in verses 5 through 9 in the lives of the elders, those who would be leading the fellowship, and then that's what the absent we see in verses 10 through 16. What I would find uh, compelling inside the text itself is when you look at verses 10 through 16, specifically verse 16, and I've called this study the abomination. The abomination, if you perhaps are a superhero fan... The abomination was, was an individual, a supervillain, a fictional supervillain, who was opposed to the Incredible Hulk. And he was this hideous, horrendous thing that opposed the Hulk. And I've looked at the text, I've looked at the teaching of this particular text, and we have inside of Titus an abomination. In fact, look at verse 16 with me. 
It says that these individuals, these false teachers teaching a false doctrine, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are claiming the Jesus seed in the absence of gospel fruit. Yet Paul is arguing, as we will see throughout the paragraph, that the Jesus seed is always producing gospel fruit. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable. And the word that the Apostle Paul chooses to use, that form of the word, occurs only here in in the entire New Testament, and it is the word abomination or abominable. He is identifying those who would teach this theology as an abomination. Now, when I read verse 16 and the word choice that the Apostle Paul uses to describe the false teacher and the false teaching, and I see that he identifies it as an abomination, there's a shock value to it. Because that teaching, I believe, is prevalent inside of the church today. And yet the Apostle Paul would identify that particular teaching as an abomination. What's the problem? The problem is that they are obscuring the gospel. They are obscuring the gospel. And why is that so significant for the Apostle Paul? Because the Apostle Paul finds the gospel to be Jesus, and for us to either add to or take away from Jesus should be, for us, an abomination. And that's how the Apostle identifies these false teachers and this false teaching. Now let's look at the larger text in which we find our paragraph. You'll remember in verse 1 of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul makes the statement that he's been identified as a servant of God, made a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for this reason, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. You have this idea that the Jesus seed, a knowledge of the truth, produces gospel fruit, produces godliness. I'll explain a little bit more what that means for us to try to pull it out of the abstract. But what's interesting, and this is why I think this is the melodic line, the thing that holds the entire book together. He identifies in chapter 1, verse 1, that the knowledge of the truth accords to godliness, that the Jesus seed always produces gospel fruit. And then in verse 16 of chapter 1, he's identifying the false teachers and false teaching, and he makes this statement, they profess to know God, they're claiming to have a knowledge of the truth, but it's not according to godliness. In fact, by their very deed, they are denying him. They are breaking the link that exists between one's justification and one's sanctification. They are saying that there is a Christian life without the Christ life. And this division, the Apostle Paul identifies as an abomination. He says it is detestable. They are detestable. They are disobedient. They are unfit for any good work. Now, when I read verse 16, and I hear what the Apostle Paul is saying concerning this false teaching, there's a sense in which we are to be shocked. We are to recoil from such thinking. It should be repugnant to us that you can have one without the other. And so the Apostle Paul identifies this idea inside of this paragraph. And through a series of contrasts, which we will see in just a moment, he says that the elders are those who are professing a knowledge of the truth and it's produced godliness in their lives. And then you have what they are opposed to or what they are being contrasted with. But the paragraph itself, 10 through 16, has four parts. It begins with a contrast, and we have to see it. That's why we had the entire paragraph read. There's a contrast between the elders that are being appointed or placed in every church in every town and the false teachers or teaching that is present in Crete. 
And then you have this extended description of what these false teachers and what that false teaching looks like. Then you have the reasons why these false teachers or teaching are to be opposed. And then what is the response that we as a corporate, we as a church should have toward those who are teaching this falsehood? What is the response that we are to have toward this false teaching? But let's begin with the contrast. If we were to look at verses 5 through 9 and we were to lay it in one column or one side and then take 10 through 16 and lay it on the other side, this is what that would look like. And what the author wants us to see is the contrast between the elders who are to be instructing in sound doctrine and those who are contradicting this sound doctrine. He is saying on one hand, the elders are those who profess the Jesus seed and they are producing gospel fruit. And this is what that looks like. And these individuals are to be occupying the office of elder. Notice the descriptive for an overseer, an elder as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to trustworthy word as taught. That is what the Jesus seed looks like. What's being described in 5 through 9 is gospel fruit. The fruits described, these qualities described are not exceptional. They're not extraordinary as if somehow the elders of our fellowship are on another level or tier than you, the hoi lapoi. That's not how this works. This is what the Jesus seed looks like with the gospel fruit. These are the people that we as a fellowship have set aside for two reasons. One is to instruct in sound doctrine. Two is to rebuke those who would contradict it. Then on the other side, this is what we then read in 10 through 16, you have a descriptive of those who are professing to know God, but by their very works, they're denying him. The two are in contrast. For there are many who are insubordinate. And this is a reoccurring theme or idea inside of Titus. They are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Paul, three times in Titus, references this Jewish element within Crete. One of the Cretans, one of our our favorite quotable verses, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Wow. What's interesting about verse 12 and verse 15 inside our text, and I'll comment on them now, but notice verse 12, he is quoting one of their own, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He is saying that the false teachers, those who were in leadership positions within the church, are no different than their secular counterpart, that they're just like the unbelieving world. That's why he makes the quote. They are just like the unbelieving. Yet the Jesus seed is always producing gospel fruit. This is not said of the elders. And then in verse 15, notice what it says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Not only do we have, as it were, a secular quote in verse 12, but then we have this proverbial statement. And the statement in verse 15 is simply saying that the Jesus seed is always producing gospel fruit. When you think of 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, it says that a reason why a dog returns to its vomit is because it's what? It's a dog. 
And why is it if you put lipstick on a pig, it always goes back to wallowing in the mire? Because it's a pig. pig. That's what this proverb is telling us. If you have the Jesus seed, what will it always produce? Gospel fruit. But if you don't have the Jesus seed, it's not going to produce gospel fruit. And when you see that unrighteousness, when you see by their works they are denying him, it's telling you that something is askew at the front end. Because if you have this, it does this. And Paul is saying of those who are occupying the office of elder, that the Jesus seed is producing gospel fruit. This is what it looks like in those who are leading the church. And they are opposed to those. They are contradicting those. They are in contrast to those who are teaching otherwise. It's interesting that one of the functions of an elder is not just to be teaching in sound doctrine, but they are also to be rebuking those who would contradict. It's as if, rightly so, that these individuals, and they're identified as shepherds, are to be protecting the sheep. They are to be protecting this community of faith. This passage, like many show us the function of the elders inside of a local church. Listen to Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. Be on guard for yourself, the Apostle Paul speaking to the elders in Ephesus, First and Second Timothy, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. We see that idea being played out in Crete, being played out in Ephesus. It's being played out across the board. Notice what it then says. Therefore, verse 31 in Acts chapter 20, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. What is the role of an elder? An elder is not only to be instructing in sound doctrine, verse 9, but also to be rebuking those who contradict it. They are put in play by God to be protecting the church. This church. Not every church that's out there, but this church. That is the function or role. And why is this function so important? What is at stake? And this is what is always alarming to me, this false teaching, these false teachers are described by Paul as detestable. They are an abomination. It is abominable. And we would struggle with putting such a label on anyone, wouldn't we? Especially in our current culture. But why is this function so important of rebuking those who contradict sound teaching? What is at stake? Often the facade makes one believe everything is okay. How are you today? Great. Everything's fine. But what we do not see is the creeping and pervasive decay of the internal soul rot. And why is this so? Because heresy, folks, false teaching is big business. Gullible Christians allow the heretics to make merchandise of the people of God. And why is such the case? It's always appalling to me to see how much money heretics raise. Why is this the case? And you know who they are fleecing? Why are we so naive? I believe it is because we do not believe that Jesus is enough in this life and in the life to come. Why are we so susceptible? Because we do not believe that Jesus' seed always produces gospel fruit. Our tension is that we don't like the fruit we are seeing. We want more. 
But what is God asking of us? To faithfully execute the responsibilities that are placed at our disposal each and every day. You've heard me say this a million times. You know what that might look like? Getting up and doing the same thing over and over and over, not just daily, not just weekly, not just monthly, but year after year after year. And then when you finish, you know what you do? You die. And you're like, Lord, is this it? Yes. Stay at the stuff. But what happens is that we are not convinced that the Jesus seed is always producing gospel fruit. And thus we believe we are responsible to create our own happiness and victory. We have come to believe that we can do it alone. That somehow the believing community is no consequence in the bigger scheme of God's redemptive purpose. We have believed the lie that we can have it our way. But God would say otherwise. You have this false teaching. And what is the false teaching? And let me digress for just a moment. It's going to build on what we have been looking at over the last several weeks, what is part of our theological DNA, what is, I believe, to be the melodic line, that the Jesus seed is always producing gospel fruit. But one of the tensions is that we don't think that Jesus Christ is enough both in this life and the life which is to come. So we think that Jesus is necessary but not enough. So there's something that I have to do. Folks, when we talk about our justification and sanctification, we must realize that we are not talking about equals. They are unbreakable. They are inseparable, but they are not equals. We are arguing always that sanctification is inseparably linked to our justification, but they are not equals. We believe that if you claim to be a Christian, this is what it would look like in real time. And that real-time look is not extraordinary, but ordinary. It functions in the mundane. It functions in the routine. But remember in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, a knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. So we ask ourselves the question, am I godly? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin and death? Then if I ask you the question, are you godly, your response should be, And then you say to yourself, self, this is what godly looks like? And it might be disappointing to hear this, but yes, this is what godliness looks like in real time. It looks mundane. It looks routine. But this is what it looks like in real time. What is this godliness? And you've heard me say this, and the reason why I go over it again is perhaps it might click in your head as to what's going on. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, God the Father took your sin and imputed it to Jesus. He bore our sin. When we profess faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, when we say, I can't, but God can and Jesus did, God imputes the very righteousness of Jesus to your account. (laughs) Oh, man. So when the Father sees you, who does he see? Sees Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. But the righteousness, and this is what's so cool about this dynamic, the righteousness that the Father imputes to you, the very righteousness of Christ, he's working in you and through you to those around you. So you know what they see? A righteous dude or dudette. That's what they see. So when I look out on you, what do I see? I see the very righteousness of Jesus. This is the language. This is the vocabulary, the vertical impacts the horizontal. That's what we are celebrating. In Crete, 
the false teachers were teaching otherwise. They were teaching this idea of works righteousness. They were saying that somehow it is the horizontal that changes the vertical. That if I simply try harder to do better, my standing before the Father is going to change. That God's attitude toward me is going to change. That's a problem. They're professing to know God, but by their works they are denying Him. Folks, the Jesus seed produces gospel fruit. And when Paul talks about according to godliness, it's the very righteousness of Jesus that has been imputed to us, that the Spirit is working in us and through us to those around us. And you might be sitting there saying, well, are there areas in my life where I am not obeying? This is an interesting tension for us as individuals because when we read the statement, they profess to know God, but by their works they deny him. You know what we do who profess to know God? We begin to overanalyze. And we ask ourselves the question, well, am I obeying God? Are there areas in your life where you are not obeying? And, and uh, by the way, I think the pulpit is at fault here. The pulpit is at fault here. If I were to poke and probe... I would find that there are areas in your life that you are struggling over and perhaps giving into. If I were to say the five, five, well, have you been coming to church every Sunday? Have you been tithing? Don't answer that question out loud. Have you been sharing Jesus with everyone and everywhere? Have you been reading your Bible every day? This is the context that I grew up in as a Christian. Are you praying Every day, how's your prayer life? Are you as intimate with God as you would like to be? Well, if I were to ask you those questions, what would you begin to do? You would begin measuring yourself, and you know what you would find? That in that scenario, in that dynamic, you'd be coming up short. And if you thought you were measuring up, you're coming up short because you are now prideful and arrogant. That's a problem. However, that is a false application to this text. What is he talking about in this text? He's talking about false teachers teaching a false theology. When I ask you the question, are there areas in your life where you are not obeying? The assumption I make is that there are areas in your life where you are not obeying. I'm not giving you a pass, by the way. But your overriding identity and thus activity is righteousness. When you sin, and I'm not saying if, you will sin. What do you default to? The gospel. If I were to ask you the question, on what basis is God going to allow you into heaven? Why would God the Father say, come on in? Is it because of what you've done? No, it's because of what he has done, and you are believing that what he has done is more than enough to do for you what you need done. So the Apostle Paul looks at this idea and he challenges it. He challenges it. He says, this is a false teaching and these are false teachers. Why is this theology, by the way? Because we sit back and we look at whatever's going on in Crete and and you need to look and consider that if what I am saying is true or not true, but you have to understand there's a problem in Crete, isn't it? Isn't there? And that problem is so severe, Paul says it's an abomination and they are abominable. 
So whatever it is, there's a problem. And I believe that somehow they have skewed the gospel. There's a problem in Crete. There's a skewing of the gospel. And Paul says it is so severe that it has to be addressed. So what are the reasons that the Apostle Paul offers as to why this false teaching and these false teachers are to be challenged? Well, notice verse 11 in our text. It says, first of all, in verse 10, there's this four. There's a contrast taking place between what he has just said and what now is being played out in Crete. Verse 11 says that they must be silenced. I'll give you three things that we are to do corporately as a fellowship toward this false teaching and these teachers. They must be silenced. Why? Because they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Verse 13, notice what the text says. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. These people need to be confronted in order to be restored. And then verse 14, notice what it says. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Why are we to be confronting these false teachers and false teaching? Well, four reasons are given. First, they are upsetting the church. If perhaps you're here for the first time and you hear what I'm saying, you're saying, well, Pastor Pat, you sound a little crazy. I'd say, well, stick around, come back, and I'll verify that claim. But you might be saying, well, Pastor Pat, that's not necessarily what I hear or believe. And I'd say, well, give it some thought. But I believe that a theology of works, works righteousness, is upsetting to the church. The problem is we have become so comfortable with it, it no longer shocks us. They are making merchandise of doctrine, verse 11. They are making merchandise of doctrine. This is an ancient problem, by the way. Jesus had it in his day, and it has continued on, perhaps from even day one. There is an appropriate application of the Old Covenant to the New Covenant Christian. You have three references made to this idea of the Jewish myth. It is suggested that this Judaizing element offered a next step or inner circle or deeper life approach to the Christian life. They were agreeing that Jesus was necessary, but they were not necessarily saying that Jesus was enough. They were suggesting that more was needed to be done by you in order to climb that ecclesiastical ladder. If I were to ask you, and here's one of the tensions that we have, and as I speak through this, you will perhaps say, oh, you know what? I think I've read this. I think I've heard this. I think I've seen this idea. And I would simply offer you this thought to consider. If I were to ask you if you are satisfied with your life or your Christian walk, how would you respond? How would you respond? Depending on your theological teeth, you would probably say you want more that there is a level of frustration or dissatisfaction with your relationship both vertically and horizontally that you would love to correct. That somehow there's this next level, there's this next step, and something is keeping you from taking that next step, that of moving up that ladder. But I, I read authors, and they'll talk about uh, intimacy with God. When I say, hey, I can tell you how to be intimate with God, and I've written a book, and if you buy it, you'll find out how. That's making merchandise of the teaching. I could go on, but I won't. 
what if I could give you five things you need to do to make everything better? Five things. That what I offer would change your life forever. I I always like infomercials. If you use this shredder, it's going to change your life. I, I, I bought these pants. They seem to fit better, and it's changed my life. I'm like, I, I like, really? Like, really? That plate changed my life? But what if I said to you, everything that you're wanting, both horizontally and vertically, I can give you? And that, I, that what I have to offer would change your life forever? And what if this solution and promise would happen for a mere $59.99 cent over four easy installments, and if paid right now, would eliminate one of the four payments. Would you bite? You know what the church does? It bites. So you have crazies asking for $53 million to buy a jet plane. And you know what they're going to get? A $53 million plane. You know what they've done? They've made merchandise of sound doctrine, but their doctrine is not sound. This is what was happening in Crete. That same misalignment consistently shows itself in today's evangelical church. Today's church has become so used to this false teaching that what Paul attacked, many embraced. So we sell the Christian life. How to have a happy X, Y, Z. What are they doing? They're making merchandise of the gospel. This was a problem. What is to be our response to this false teaching? And, and when we talk about sound doctrine, the Jesus seed always producing gospel fruit, that a knowledge of the truth accords with godliness, that those who profess by their works are manifesting God, what are we telling you? What is true? It's true. It's inevitable. It's automatic. It's yours. But what is our response to be towards those who are teaching this false doctrine? Paul makes three statements in the paragraph. They are to be silenced, verse 11. They are to be stopped. And again, I I think we're living in a a weird time period. And it's only going to get worse, by the way. Where everything, I mean, if in Crete, it wasn't as if they had automatic access to the rest of the world. We do. You can put stuff on the internet and it just goes viral. It just goes out. But they are to be silenced. We need to manage well what we have in-house. They are to be silenced. That's why a prime directive of the elders is to protect our theological DNA internally and then to promote it externally. Not only are they to be silenced, but they are to be rebuked. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. That doesn't sound warm and fuzzy at all, does it? They are to be silenced. They are to be rebuked. And notice chapter 3, verse 10. What a powerful statement. As for a person who stirs up division, he's not referring to some subset within the false teaching neighborhood. He's talking about false teachers. And when we saw in Timothy, confront them for the purpose of restoration. But if, notice, if after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him. Wow. Knowing that such a person is warped, and sinful, he is self-condemned. He's referring back to chapter 1, verse 16. This is powerful stuff. One of the problems we have when dealing with a text like this 
is that now am I supposed to be running around on the internet or in our community or even as a fellowship calling out everyone that we disagree with? Am I, as an individual, bearing that responsibility? Well, to whom did Paul write? He wrote to Titus. Titus functioned in the office of pastor elder. He was inside of that community of faith. He had a responsibility as an elder to teach sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradicted it. He had that responsibility. This is a responsibility of the corporate. And I believe it's a responsibility of the elders as they represent the corporate. It doesn't dismiss, as it were, the individual application to us as people. But there is a primary responsibility of carrying this out given to the elders of our fellowship, of saying, this is wrong, this is right. And we have been endeavoring to do that throughout. I find it always interesting when the Apostle Paul writes letters, he names individuals. So I've made a list of 10 people that you need to watch out for. (laughs) You're all like, is it me, Lord? But this is the kind of scenario. I mean, now we have such an expansive menu and platform and opportunity. What what do we do with this? So the Apostle Paul writes to the church of Crete. There's a problem in Crete. The problem is over theology. And it's not in the absence of behavior because the Jesus seed is always producing gospel fruit. And they are professing to know God, but by their very works, they are denying him. That's the challenge. And so Paul identifies those who are going to set in order a disordered church And he's identifying these false teachers and false teaching. And he says there's a real reason why, because that theology produces soul rot. And we as elders and we as a church are to be standing against these things. And at some point in time, they are to be rejected. That's when you carry out church discipline, when you remove those people. But you look at a paragraph like this and you ask yourself the question, well, does it really matter? Does it matter to us as individuals and to us as a corporate? Let me offer you this thinking. Elders are to silence the insubordinate. We have a responsibility as elders. When the individuals whom we approach to become elders, we tell them straight up, you need to be able to teach what we believe and to refute those who would contradict it. We're not asking them to take on an internet ministry. We're asking them to do that in the context of this local church. The problem was is that the false teaching separated the Christian life from Christ. They claimed to have the Jesus seed, but without gospel fruit. This is false teaching. It is false behavior. What do we need to do? We need to let the gospel shape our lives. We need to let our works testify to our faith. Be who you are. Be who you are. Keep the faith and do not turn from the truth. Be discerning. As you listen to teaching... And verify it with Scripture. I mean, you have opportunity. I know many of you read multiple books. I know many of you listen to multiple sermons. I know many of you watch multiple TV programs. Be discerning. Be discerning. That's a challenge for all of us. False teachers, false teachers are to repent of their unsound doctrine and return to sound doctrine. That seems like a tall, tall order when it's financially lucrative. Unbelievers cannot look to their works righteousness to secure for them a right standing before God. 
If you're sitting here thinking that it is possible for you to do enough to merit favor before the Father, I'm telling you that you can never do enough. It is for this reason that Jesus came. Your works do not determine your profession. Your works do not determine your profession. I know as someone who has, in a sense, grown up in the Christian culture, as, a, as, a, as soon as I got saved, two months later I went to Bible college, I, I've wrestled through all this stuff for decades but if you've ever doubted your salvation and someone says, well, are you living the Christian life? Then what are you looking to to verify whether or not you are or are not saved? Your good works. Your works do not determine your profession. How you answer the question, am I saved, really will give an insight as to what you're looking to. Am I saved? I know I am saved. I know I am saved because I have faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why I know I am saved. I am confident that that Jesus seed is producing gospel fruit so that when you look at me, you should see a righteous individual. How righteous do I have to be? Well, I can assure you that I stand in stark contrast to the Babylon in which I exist. I sat there this morning and I'm singing these songs and I am affirming the theology of those songs, Christ alone. I can assure you that they're not doing it right now in Babylon. I showed up today, I engaged in worship. Why? Because that is gospel fruit from the Jesus seed. I take great comfort in singing songs that are theologically rich, that affirm with you our confidence in the person and work of Jesus. But how you answer the question, am I saved? If you say, well, I go to church, I read my Bible, I am generous, I care for the poor, I'm defending the weak, I'm... There's only one way to answer that question that's right. And that's the Jesus answer. And it's my prayer that all of us here today would affirm faith in the person and work of Jesus. As a consequence of that, gospel fruit happens. But we always have to be on guard because the creep, the abomination, is always a genuine threat. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. And then we will be coming forward to partake in the Lord's table. Our Father God, I thank you for the opportunity that is ours to gather as your people in this place, to study the text of Scripture, to recognize that there is this genuine threat. And Paul always identifies the threat as internal. It's here. It might not be fully manifested, but it's here. And so may we as elders and individuals be vigilant in staying alert gospel truth. Father, I ask that as we partake of the elements today that we would reflect on the gospel, that this is all about Jesus, and that when we are asked the question, am I saved, we would respond with yes because of what Jesus did, not because of what we are doing. Thank you for this time. Use it to enrich us, strengthen us in the gospel. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.